Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 35 to 39 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 39 The Sandal Sown by Histius Now when Darius heard that Sardis had been destroyed, he sent for Histius and said to him, O Histius, I heard that the man to whom thou hast given thy city has been doing strange things. He has brought over men from Europe to help the Ionians, whom I shall punish. How can all this seem good to thee, and without thy counsel, how could such a thing be done? See that thou bring not thyself into blame afresh. Histius tried not to think of the slave whose head he had shaved and whom he had sent to Aristagoras, as he told the king that he had had nothing to do with the revolt in Ionia. He begged to be allowed to go to help part a furnace to put down the rebellion. He would do even more to show his loyalty. He would seize the rich island of Sardinia to add to the possessions of the great king. Yea, I swear by the gods whom the king worshippeth, he cried, that I will not put off the tunic in which I shall go down to Ionia before I bring under thy power the mighty island of Sardinia. It was not difficult to persuade Darius that Histius was innocent, for since the Greek had tarried for him at the bridge of boats, the king was ever ready to believe in his loyalty. So, to his great delight, Histius was bidden to go to Sardis and help Artaphernes to put down the revolt. 
But Artaphernes was less easily deceived than the great king. No sooner had Histias arrived at Sardis than the Persian accused him of treachery. Why did the Ionians rebel against the king? He asked the Greek in a stern voice. I cannot tell, answered Histias. I have marvelled at all the things which have happened. Oh, Histias, said Artaphernes, thou hast thus much to do with these matters. Thou didst sew this sandal, and Aristagoras hath put it on. Then at length, Histias was afraid lest his deceit had been discovered, and lest he should be punished. So when night came, he stole out of the city, and went as speedily as he might to be at the sea. From that time he became a sea robber, or pirate, seizing any vessel from which he could hope to get booty, whether it belonged to Greek or to barbarian. After a long time he was taken prisoner by the Persians. Artaphernes ordered that he should be crucified and that his head should be sent to Darius. But the great king was displeased that his general had not sent the Greek to him alive. If Histius had been sent away alive to King Darius, said Herodotus, he would not, I think, have suffered any harm but his trespass would have been forgiven him. Even as it was, Darius was determined to show what honour was yet possible to his faithless servant, for he ordered his slaves to wash his head and adorn it well, and to bury it as the head of one who had done much good to himself and to the Persians. In 494 BC, four years after the Athenians had sailed to the help of the Ionians, the revolt was crushed. Miletus, where the rebellion had begun, was punished more severely than the other rebellious cities. Chapter 40 Darius Demands Earth and Water The Ionic Revolt was ended, but Darius had yet to punish the Athenians for burning the city of Sardis. Eight years had now passed since she had been destroyed yet his anger against the Greeks was as fierce as ever. Daily during all these years, a slave had said to him as he sat at dinner, Sire, remember the Athenians, and now 
at length his vengeance was at hand. Mardonius, one of the king's generals, was ordered to invade Greece and bring back with him to Susa the Athenians who had dared to destroy Sardis. So Mardonius crossed the Hellespont and began to march through Thrace and Macedonia. His fleet, with part of his army, was to meet him later beyond the perilous promontory of Mount Athos. The country through which Mardonius marched was wild and inhabited by rough and savage tribes. These tribes attacked the Persian troops so fiercely that more than half of them were slain. Meanwhile, the fleet had encountered a terrible storm, and three hundred ships were dashed to pieces upon the rocks near Mount Athos, while twenty thousand men were drowned. When Mardonius heard of this terrible disaster, he knew that his troops would not now be strong enough to invade Greece, so he went back to Persia. But Darius was as determined as ever to punish the Athenians. He spent two years in preparations, and then, before he set out for Greece, he sent heralds to the different states, demanding from each earth and water. To give earth to the great king was to acknowledge him as ruler of their land. To give water was to own that he was monarch of the sea. Many of the states were afraid to refuse and sent the earth and water which Darius demanded. But among these was neither Athens nor Sparta. So indignant were these two cities that a barbarian, as they called Darius, should send such a demand to these free states of Greece that they treated his heralds with scant courtesy. The Athenians flung the messenger who came to their city into a deep pit, while he who went to Sparta was tossed into a well and told there that he would find the earth and water that his king desired. In the spring of 490 BC, Darius sent the army and fleet that he had assembled across the Aegean Sea to the island of Euboea. Here there was a city named Eritrea, whose inhabitants had shared in the destruction of Sardis. The Persians plundered the city and took its chief citizens prisoner, loading them with chains. Flushed with victory, 
The army then crossed over the Attica and landed near the plain of Marathon. There where the mountains look on Marathon and Marathon looks on the sea. A great battle was fought between the Greeks and the Persians. Hippias, the tyrant who had fled from Athens many years before, had been living under the protection of Darius and was now with the Persian army. It is said that it was he who had advised the enemy to land at Marathon. The army of Darius was much larger than that of the Athenians, for it was one hundred thousand strong, while the Greeks numbered only about ten thousand soldiers. The Greeks were commanded by ten generals. If they did not agree how to attack the enemy or how to defend themselves, they consulted one of the archons called Polemarch or Commander-in-Chief. The Polemarch at this time was Callimachus, but the glory of the victory tree of Marathon belongs not to Callimachus, but to the general Miltiades. It was Miltiades who had urged the Greeks to break up the bridge of boats at the Danube and to leave Darius to his fate, and he had ever rebelled against the lordship of the Persian king. He had done all he could to encourage the Ionian revolt, and when it was crushed, he fled to Athens, to which he belonged. When the Persians landed at Marathon, the ten Greek generals met together to decide how best they might defend their country. Five of them, among whom Miltiades was the most urgent, wished to march at once to Marathon to attack the enemy. But the other five were more timid and said that it would be better to wait until they were joined by the other Greek states before they risked a battle. Then Miltiades rose in the council of war to beg Callimachus to give his vote for war without delay. So sure was he of success that his eagerness decided the pole march to give his vote as Miltiades wished. Thus it was settled that the army should march to Marathon without delay. At this time, an army was usually drawn up for battle in three divisions, the right wing, the left wing, and the centre. On the field of Marathon, Miltiades made his wings as deep as possible, but as his army was small, this left his centre less strong than that of the enemy.
Chapter 41 The Battle of Marathon While the council of war was being held, a youth named Philippides was on his way to Sparta to beg the citizens to hasten to help of their country. Philippides was sometimes called by his friends, Theodipides. As Philippides sped on his errand, a strange adventure befell him, for it is told that he met the great god Pan. There, in the cool of a cleft, sat he, majestical Pan. Ivy drooped wanton, kissed his head, moss cushioned his hoof. All the great God was good in the eyes, grave kindly, the curl, carved on the bearded cheek, amused at a mortal's awe, as under the human trunk, the goat thighs grand I saw. Halt, Theodipides, halt I did, my brain in a whirl, hither to me. Why pale in my presence, he graciously began. The young Athenian was too amazed to answer. He but gazed at the god in silence. Then Pan asked why he was no longer worshipped in Athens, and promised that he would fight among the ranks of the Athenians against Persia so that henceforth they would worship him in gratitude for his help. Test Pan, trust me. Go bid Athens take heart. Laugh Persia to scorn. Have faith in the temples and tombs. Go say to Athens, the goat god saith, when Persia so much as strewn so not the soil, is flung under the sea. Then praise Pan who fought in the ranks with your most and lean. Goat thigh to grieved thigh, made one cause with the free and the bold. As a pledge the god then gave to Philippides a handful of herbs called fennel. The youth then sped on as before until he reached Sparta. But although the Spartans said they were willing to fight, they could not march until the moon was full, for their religious rites forbade that they should. So Philippides, having done his errand, hastened back to Athens and told the citizens all that had befallen him. Glad that the god had promised his aid, the Athenians at once set out on their march to Marathon. Here they were joined by a force of one thousand men from the little town of Pleiate. They came to show their gratitude to the Athenians, who had sent help to them 
when they were attacked by their enemies. From their camp on the hill above the plain of Marathon, the Greeks looked down upon the vast army of Persians. For several days, no battle was fought, the Persians being unable to attack the Athenians without danger as they were on the hill. At length, Miltiades, whom the other nine generals were willing to follow, resolved to wait no longer. He ordered his men to advance at a sharp run down the hill and to charge the enemy. When they had started, the soldiers could not stop themselves. Quicker and quicker they ran, until, when they reached the plain, they crashed into the Persian army with tremendous force. The shock was so great that the enemy gave way before it and was driven by the Athenians towards the sea or towards a small marsh that lay at one end of the plain. But while both wings of the Greek army were victorious, the centre, which was weak, would have been beaten, had not Miltiades seen the danger, and called back those who were pursuing the scattered Persian wings. Only after a fierce struggle was the centre of the Persian army also driven to the shore in utter confusion. Those who escaped the sword of the Athenians tried to reach their ships, but seven of the vessels had been seized by the victors. In the struggle on the shore, Callimachus the pole march was slain. The battle of Marathon was won, and the glory of the victory was due to the prowess and skill of Miltiades. No sooner was the victory certain than the whole army cried that Philippides should race once again but this time to the Acropolis to tell Athens that by the help of Pan she was indeed saved. So Pheodipides flung down his shield, ran like fire once more, and the space twixt the fennel field, and Athens was stubble again, a field which a fire runs through till in he broke, rejoice we conquer, like wine through clay. Joy in his blood-bursting heart, he died, the bliss. So is Pheodipides happy forever, the noble, strong man, who could race like a god, bear the face of a god, whom a god loved so well. He saw the land saved he had helped to save, and was suffered to tell. Such tidings, yet never decline, but gloriously as he began, 
so to end gloriously, wants to shout, thereafter be mute. Athens is saved, Pheidippides dies in the shout for his mead. Chapter 42 Miltiades sails to the island of Paros. Until the Greeks won their great victory at Marathon in 490 BC, they had always feared the Persians. Now their fear was forgotten. They had still a long struggle before the Persians were banished from their land. But, inspired by the memory of Marathon, the Greeks fought bravely and were sure always that they would be the victors. It was as though on the day of Marathon, the gods had said to Athens, Go on and prosper. Among those who fought on this famous field, was Themistosceles. He was young then and fought in the ranks, but he was yet to become one of the greatest men Athens ever knew. Aristides too was there, of whom as of Themistosceles there are many things to tell. Aeschylus, the great tragic poet, also bore arms at Marathon. When the battle was over, it was found that the Athenians had lost only one hundred and ninety-two men, while of the Persians, six thousand four hundred lay dead upon the field. In spite of this, the army of the Persians was still large enough to attack the unwalled city of Athens. Soon after the battle, a bright shield was hung on one of the heights of the city, and it was said that a traitor had signalled to the enemy that now was the time to attack her. But Miltiades saw the light as well as the Persians, and guessing what it meant, he took his army back to Athens by a forced march. He arrived in time to see the fleet of enemy as it approached the harbour. But when the Persian general saw that he need not hope to take the city unawares, he did not venture to risk another battle. An army already flushed with victory would soon scatter his dejected troops, so he ordered the fleet to sail for Asia. While Miltiades was making a forced march back to Athens, Aristides was left at Marathon with a band of soldiers to guard the prisoners and the plunder, for his honesty was already well known. Neither he himself touched any of the treasures of the Persian camp, nor did he allow his followers to plunder 
Callias, the torch-bearer, most cruel and impious of men, did, it is true, seize a treasure, but he did so unknown to Aristides. For one of the Persians, thinking Callias was of noble rank and hoping to win his favour, fell at his feet, and then, rising, took his hand and led him to a ditch in which a large quantity of gold had been hidden. Callias seized the treasure, then lest the Persian should tell what had happened, he slew him. The Spartans who had promised to help to fight against their country's foe did not forget to march to Marathon when the moon was full. They even marched one hundred and fifty miles in three days. But in spite of this, they reached the battlefield too late to share in the victory. A mound was raised over the Athenians who had perished, about half a mile from the sea. If you go to where the mountains look on Marathon, and Marathon looks on the sea, you may see it still. After the victory, Miltiades was the hero of Athens. He knew that the citizens would grant what he chose to ask, so he begged for a fleet of seventy ships. He knew of a land where gold and treasure were to be in abundance. Thither would he sail and return to enrich the city. The fleet was entrusted to him, but Miltiades did not sail to the wonderful land of which he had told, but, so it is said, to the island of Paros. Here in the capital city, which was also called Paros, dwelt a citizen with whom the Athenian had a quarrel. To punish him, Miltiades laid siege to the town, but again and again his attacks were repulsed. Then one day, as he was on his way to the temple of Demeter, Miltiades was seized with a sudden panic. In his haste to leave the sacred grove, he leapt over a fence, and in doing so, he hurt his thigh. When he returned to Athens, he was no longer in favour with the people whom he had deceived. Wounded as he was, he carried into court on a couch and was condemned to pay a heavy fine. But he died before he had the money collected. Meanwhile, Darius heard how his army had been defeated at Marathon. In his wrath, he vowed that he would never rest until he had conquered Greece. Three years he spent, preparing once again to invade Europe. His heralds were sent all over his wide dominions 
to gather a great army. Horses and corn, too, the king demanded should be sent, much more than before. But the great king never carried out his plan of again attacking Greece, for he died in 485 BC, after having reigned for 36 years. His son, Xerxes, succeeded the throne of Persia. Chapter 43 Aristides is ostracized Four years after the Battle of Marathon, Thermostosceles and Aristides were the two chief citizens in Athens. Thermostosceles wished to make Athens a great sea power, for he was sure that some day the Persians would return. He believed that if the Athenians were able to destroy the Persian fleet, all would be well. The land forces of the enemy would be powerless to conquer Greece. But if Athens was to have a better fleet, Thermostosceles knew that she must first have a better harbour. The one that the Athenians used was at Phalerum, where the sea almost reached the city. It was only an open roadstead, a place where ships might ride at anchor, which would be of little use to protect vessels from an enemy. Thermostosceles knew a better site than Phalerum, where a strong harbour might be built. This was the rocky peninsula of Piraeus, which was about four miles from Athens. By his advice, three harbours were made here into which the largest vessels could enter. Yet the opening to all three was such that it could be closed easily with chains and logs, so as to prevent the entrance of enemies. The Piraeus soon grew into a large town, for those who did not own land flocked to the port in hope to find work. Not only did Thermostosceles persuade the Athenians to fortify Piraeus, but he also made Athens a great sea power. At this time, there was money to spare in the public treasury, for a rich bed of silver had been discovered in an old mine. This money was to be divided among the Athenians. Thermostosceles was brave enough to risk the anger of the people by proposing that it should not be given to them, but should be used to build ships. The Athenians were eager to conquer the people of Aegina, who for years had carried their coasts and they agreed to his proposal more readily than Thermostosceles had dared to hope. 
With the money the state built 200 ships, so the people were able to conquer their enemy and were well content. But it was Thermostosiles alone who wished to prepare Greece for a great Persian invasion. Of this the Athenians had no fear. When the ships were ready, Thermostosiles saw that the soldiers must be trained to manage the vessels, to become indeed good sailors. A wise Greek named Plato tells us that Thermostosiles, from steady soldiers, turned the Greeks into mariners and seamen, tossed them about the sea, and gave occasion for the reproach against him, that he took away from the Athenians the spear and the shield, and bound them to the bench and the oar. Aristides and Thermostosiles were rivals. They were brought up together, and when they were boys, they usually took different sides, just as they continued to do as they were men. If you could have watched the boys in school or in the playground, you would have seen at once how different they were. Thermostosiles was impetuous and bold, artful too, if by being so he could gain his own ends. Aristides was gentle and retiring, honest as the day, in work as in play. Thermostosiles was not fond of lessons, nor yet of games. He knew a great deal even as a boy, of what was going on in the city and the state, and he was eager to know more. While Aristides and his comrades were laughing and shouting over their game of quoits, Thermostosiles walked up and down alone in a quiet corner of the playground. He was rehearsing a speech, which he would soon begin to recite aloud. Sometimes, in more friendly mood, he called his playfellows together and delivered his speech to the crowd of little critics. It was usually about the affairs of state, about politics, as we would say. His schoolmaster saw that although the lad did not love lessons, he could be an earnest student if he were interested in a subject. One day he said to him, You, my boy, will be nothing small, but great, one way or another, for good or else for bad. From his boyhood, Thermostosiles was ambitious, and when he grew up, he accepted bribes, if by doing so he thought he could reach a higher position in state. When he became a judge, he showed favour to his friends, even though to do so was unjust. One of them once said to him that he would be a good judge, if he would give sentence 
without respect of persons, but in no way abashed, Thermostosceles answered, May I never sit upon the seat of judgment where my friends shall not receive more from me in favour than strangers. Aristides was in this, as in other things, the opposite of his rival, for he was an honourable and upright judge. He was ever ready to please or to help a friend, but to do so he would stoop to no act of injustice. Once he accused one of his enemies of a crime, and the people, with whom Aristides was at the time a favourite, wished to condemn the man without listening to his defence. But this Aristides would not allow. When he himself was judge, two people came before him, one of whom was an enemy of his own. The other, knowing this, felt sure that he would win his suit, and instead of telling what he accused the man, he began to remind Aristides that it was an enemy of his own who stood before him. But Aristides bade him be silent. Tell me not, he said, what injury he has done to me, but what harm you have suffered from him, for I am trying your cause and not my own. Thermostosceles not only took bribes, but he often tried to make others accept them. Many of the Greeks did so, for they could not easily resist gold. But Aristides was never one of those who took money from Thermostosceles, or indeed from anyone. When Thermostosceles urged the Athenians to increase their fleet, Aristides opposed him with all his strength. He did this not because he disliked his rival, but because he believed that it would be better for the state to increase her army rather than to have a powerful navy. About this, as about other important affairs, the two great men disagreed so often and so long that the people thought the city would be governed better if one of the leaders was ostracized. So they assembled in the marketplace where each was given an oyster shell on which to write the name of the man he wished to banish from Athens. As the citizens were busy writing on their shells, a rough country fellow who could not write came up to Aristides and, handing him his shell, asked him to put down the name of Aristides. The countryman did not know that he was speaking to Aristides himself. Has Aristides done you an injury? asked the Athenian as he took the shell. None at all, answered the fellow. Neither know I the man, 
but I am tired of everywhere hearing him called the just. Aristides did not answer the ignorant countryman, but quietly wrote his own name upon the shell and handed it back to its owner. The necessary number of votes being recorded against him, he was ostracized. As he left the city, he lifted up his hands to the heaven and prayed that the Athenians might never have any occasion which should constrain them to remember Aristides. And this he did, although it was a bitter thing for him to leave the city that he loved so well. In his absence, he knew that Thermostosceles would be able to carry out his plans unopposed, and this added to his pain. But Thermostosceles was wiser than Aristides when he urged the Athenians to increase their fleet. For although the great King Darius was dead, Xerxes, his son, was preparing to invade Greece as his father had hoped to do. And without a large and well-equipped fleet, the Athenians would have been unable to meet the Persians at sea.